0: This is the third week in our five-week series, Moments with Jesus. And the purpose of this series is simple. It's to get to know Jesus better. And we are getting to know Jesus better by looking closely at five specific moments in Jesus' life, five exceptional moments that we are confident reveal Jesus' character and his heart. In fact, I feel we've already been given a deeper glimpse into the heart of Jesus during the first two weeks of our series. In week one, Barry showed us that Jesus is a man of great mercy. And his great mercy was fully on display in the moment that he called Matthew to be his disciple, Matthew, was a tax collector and tax collectors were people who were universally considered to be great sinners and yet Jesus in his great mercy called Matthew out of his sinful occupation and into new life as one of Jesus' disciples. And then last week, Barry showed us that Jesus is a man of great compassion. And we saw Jesus' compassion everywhere. It was everywhere in the story of Jesus raising the widow of Nain's only son from the dead. And this week we come to our third uh, moment with Jesus. And I must tell you right up front that this moment is very different than the moments we looked at in our first two weeks. In the first two moments of our series we saw Jesus dealing with down-to-earth situations. uh, Situations that we can all relate to. Jesus in the first week showed mercy to someone who had lived a wayward life. And then the second week, we looked at Jesus offering compassion to someone who had suffered great loss. And these are both situations that we can understand. We all understand the need for mercy and we all understand the need for compassion. But this week, we turn to a moment with Jesus that was anything but down to earth, anything but regular life. It's still a moment that reveals a great deal about Jesus' character, but it isn't a moment that many people can relate to immediately. Today, we are looking at a moment that is referred to broadly as the transfiguration of Jesus. And you can tell just by that name that this, that, the, that this moment is given, the transfiguration of Jesus, that during this moment, something outside of the ordinary is going to happen. But as out of the ordinary as this moment might have been, three of the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all include this on this unusual out of the ordinary moment in their books about Jesus' life. And the only reason that I think that John, the writer of the fourth gospel, did not include this moment in his gospel is that he'd read the other three gospels. And he knew that they'd done a good job of, de- of describing something he remembered well. And so he said, I'll just leave it to them and I'll just save space on my scroll for other things. Now, today we're primarily going to be looking at Mark's telling of this moment, and I chose Mark for a very specific reason. I had three choices, but I chose Mark, and and here's the reason why I chose it. We are told by a good number of the early church fathers that Mark spent many years traveling with the apostle Peter and helping him as his translator. Peter spoke Aramaic, but he traveled throughout the ancient world where most people spoke Greek or Latin. And Mark was a rich boy. He grew up in a family that could train him in these things. And so he traveled alongside Peter for how long, we don't know, but the early church fathers said for a long time. And that he translated Peter's Aramaic into Greek into Latin as Peter would speak. So what this means is this, that Mark's account of the story of Jesus' transfiguration would have come directly from Peter. And as we'll see in a moment, Peter was there. He was an eyewitness. And I felt that if we're going into this out of the ordinary moment, having the report of an eyewitness might be helpful. Now, I will refer to Matthew and Luke's versions of this moment because they include a few details that are important that Mark leaves out. But we will be focusing on Mark's version, and you can find Mark's version on, it's Mark 9, verses 2 to 13. It's on page 837 in our house, Bible, I believe. And while you're looking it up, I want to say a couple of things. First, I want to say hey to those of you online We know you're out there in large numbers. And I have to say, this is an odd thing, but you know that I almost never get anything from people who come to the services afterwards. I get almost no emails from y'all. But you know what? I get a pile of them from people all over the world. So you're watching, we're glad you're here. Get your Bibles out, okay? And then the other thing is this. I don't know whether you like my teaching on things like Mark, but I'm actually, teaching a class on Mark and I start up live this Tuesday night at seven here in this building. So we're in chapter eight and I'm preaching this morning for 25 minutes on these verses. I will take five weeks when the class gets going to cover these, there's just so much here, but you're welcome to come seven o'clock student ministries East. So everybody have their passage in front of you. And I want to put this passage into the context of Mark's entire book quickly, or as we say around here, I wanna put this passage into the world of the text. Mark's gospel at its most basic is divided into two halves, two halves. And the first half begins with a story that you may be familiar with. It's when Jesus is asleep in a boat and a big storm comes up and he's, and the disciples are worried that the boat is going to be overwhelmed with the water. It's going to sink, and they're all going to drown. And they wake up Jesus, and Jesus wakes up, and He looks around, and He commands the wind and the waves to settle down. And they do. They do. And, well, the, when this happens, all the disciples are stunned, and they look at one another, and they ask this, Who is this man? Who is this man that the wind and the waves obey? Who is this man? And then what happens in the rest of the first half of the book of Mark is that we get story after story. It goes all the way to chapter eight. We get story after story that answers the question, who is this man? And in the first half of Mark, we find out that Jesus is a man who has authority over the demons. And he's a man that has power to heal our bodies. He can heal the deaf and he can even heal the blind. He can even raise us a dead person from the the dead and give them life again. He's a man that can multiply food. We find out he can walk on water. Plus these stories also tell us that Jesus is a man who has the authority to speak on God's behalf to tell people what they should do on the Sabbath and how they should obey the law. These stories all answer the question, who is this man? And the first half of Mark ends when Jesus asks the disciples directly, who do you say I am? And then Peter answers correctly and says, you are the Christ, the Messiah. The first half of the book ends right there and then the second half starts up and what we get is we get amazing story after amazing story that tells us what it means for Jesus to be indeed be the Christ, the Messiah. And today's passage is the first moment in the second half of Mark that shows us what it really means when we say He is the Christ, when we say He is the Messiah. So let's look at verse 2 in chapter 9. It says, six days later, Jesus took Peter and James and John and he led them up a high mountain to be alone. Saying that they were going to a high mountain is important. The way that the ancient people perceived things was that God lived in this space above the earth. They thought the world was flat and that there was a space called sky and then right above it was a space called, they called it the heavens, plural. And the gods, for most people, lived there, but the Jews believed God lived in this little space. And so they also believed that the higher you got on earth, the closer you were to the space where God lived. This is why ancient people were constantly building towers, because they wanted to get closer to the space where God lived. And they firmly believed that you were far more likely to meet God when you got closer to the space that he lived. And so, mountaintops were important to them. In fact, the ancient people often referred to the tops of mountains as, and I find this really funny, the suburbs of heaven. So anytime you see a mention in the Bible of climbing to a mountaintop. It means you should expect something amazing might happen, and it certainly did in this story. Look at what happens. It says, as the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed. His clothes became dazzling white, far whiter than any earthly bleach could ever make them. Now, just the sound of the word in Greek that gives us transformed, it's metamorpho, metamorphao that's the word that gives us metamorphosis. It just sounds like something amazing is going to happen when you say metamorphao, And it did. Look, it's, it, it's happening to Jesus. And Matthew and Luke both tell us that something more than Jesus' clothing became dazzling. They, say that both, they both say that his face began to shine like the sun. Like the sun, which, by the way, is a direct reference to what the Old Testament book of Exodus tells us what happened to Moses' face when Moses was just in the presence of God. His face started to shine. And guess where Moses was when his face began to shine? He was on Mount Sinai, he was on a mountaintop. It goes on to say, then Elijah and Moses appeared and began to talk, began talking with Jesus. Now, no one, I have read tons of commentators, and no one has ever told me or f- explained how they knew this was Moses and Elijah on the mountaintop. I'm thinking, did Jesus introduce them? Did they have name tags? I don't know. It doesn't say. It doesn't say, but... All we know is that they did have some inkling and correctly that they were with Moses and Elijah. Now again, I don't know how they knew who they were, but I do have a theory as to why these two Old Testament figures met with Jesus that day. Now again, this is Tim Ayers' theory, okay? So take it for what it's worth. The Old Testament is very clear that Elijah did not die. He didn't die, he was taken straight up into the presence of God and he never experienced death. And if you carefully read the last passage of the book of Deuteronomy, the passage that tells us about Moses' death and his burial, it is obvious that these verses were added to Moses' writings that are the book of Deuteronomy sometime later on after Moses was gone to give the book a proper ending. And so it just makes sense to me that Moses could not have written about his own death and his own burial. And what I've discovered over time as I've studied is that at this moment and before for a long time and after this moment for a long time in the book now, Jewish scholars believed and taught that Moses, like Elijah, did not physically die but that he was taken up into heaven by God when he got to that mountaintop. No one was there. It says nobody knows where he was buried and it's not unusual for us to find bits at the end of Bible verses that were added to tie it up that were added much later. And what I'm beginning to believe is true. It's a good possibility that Moses was taken up by God on that mountaintop, which means that Elijah and Moses never faced death and it would make sense that these two would show up here with Jesus on that mountaintop. And it especially makes sense when the Gospel of Luke tells us that they were together talking about what he calls Jesus' soon coming exodus, which was code word in their language for death. Your exodus was your death. And neither Moses, or Elijah had experienced it. But hey, all we can be certain about is that Jesus was talking to Moses and he was talking to Elijah. And no matter how that came to happen, it's amazing. It's amazing. But let's go on to verse 5. Peter exclaimed, Rabbi, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let's make three shelters as memorials One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And he said this because he didn't really know what to say for they were all terrified. I've heard many preachers say that this is a moment that shows a prime example of Peter's foolishness. Luke does tell us though that Jesus's reason for wanting to go to this mountaintop in the first place was to be alone so they could pray. And he also tells us that the trip was long and arduous and that when the disciples got up there with Jesus and he started to pray, they all fell asleep. They all fell asleep. And so my thought is this, Peter was probably asleep or at least half asleep and he was suddenly awakened by sound, the sound of voices, and he saw this scene that caught him completely off guard, it's no wonder he was terrified. Mark uses six different Greek words to describe people's fear. And so it's clear that he was very careful Picking the right word to say that someone was afraid. And he chose the word ekphoboy. An ekphoboy is a word that describes what you feel when you are suddenly realizing that something overwhelming and unexpected is happening to you. It's that kind of fear that happens when you're shocked into something that terrifies you. And something overwhelmingly unexpected was happening to Peter. It's no wonder that he might have said something a bit ridiculous about building what would have been a shelter out of sticks and branches for these three men that he was meeting on the mountaintop. I'm sure that I might have said something a bit silly if I'd been there and been as ecfoboyed as he was. Let's go on. It says, then a cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my dearly loved son, listen to him. Matthew tells us that their response, the disciples response to this cloud and this voice was to fall flat on their faces. And I get that. This cloud and this voice is of course, the entrance of God himself into this moment. And did you notice that God was speaking directly to the disciples here? He was telling them that Jesus was his son, his dearly loved son. It's all in the particular too. There's only one, he is my dearly loved son. And then he goes on to tell them that they need to listen to him. If you go back in that first half of Mark and look around, you'll find a number of times where Jesus says this and the disciples go, are you sure about that Jesus? You're, oh, What, you're gonna die and what's all this, forget it. They don't do what? They don't listen to him. God needed to tell them in that moment, listen to him. Verse eight, suddenly when they looked around, Moses and Elijah were gone and they saw only Jesus with them. And as they went back down the mountain, he told them not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept it to themselves, but they often asked each other what he meant by rising from the dead. Now, I want you to know that the concept of rising from the dead was not new to these disciples. The concept was rife through the whole of Jewish thinking at the time, But most Jews of that day believed that there was a day coming when all Jews, except those who had lived reprobate lives, would rise from the dead. I'm talking every Jew who ever lived would rise from the dead physically and join the Messiah in the new kingdom of God. This was the hope of the Jewish people. They all thought that someday out in the future, everybody was gonna rise from the dead, but rising from the dead was not something that anyone had ever talked about as some sort of special resurrection for one person. This was a eschatological hope, if you will. But Jesus was talking about something that was going to happen to him soon. It's no wonder that this confused them and they talked to each other about it all the time. It says often. Verse 11 says, then they asked him, why do the teachers of religious law insist that Elijah must return before the Messiah comes? Jesus responded, Elijah is indeed coming first to get everything ready. Yet why do the scriptures say that the son of man must suffer greatly and be treated with utter contempt? But I tell you, Elijah has already come and they chose to abuse him just as the scripture predicted. Well, you can see in these verses as they were coming down the mountain side, the subject changed greatly and I've put a lot of additional, or I put some additional information about this last bit on the app. But the truth is that most Jewish people at the time had been taught that Elijah was going to come back first. Remember, he hadn't died. He was going to come back and do all sorts of settling things up or setting things right sort of stuff. And it mostly had to do with the land, giving land back to people and re- releasing people from debts. It was a lot of stuff like that. But everybody was sure that, that Elijah was gonna come and get everything ready so the Messiah could show up. And who had the disciples just seen? Elijah. And I'm sure they were wondering, If when he disappeared, if he hadn't started down the mountainside before they did and was going down to start setting things right, they were thinking about this and wondering. But did you notice Jesus never really answers their question? In fact, he asks them another question, which doesn't get answered either. The answer, or the question he asks is, why do the scriptures say that the son of man, and that is a name that Jesus used for himself over and over. He says, why do the scriptures say that the son of man must suffer greatly and be treated with utter contempt? You can tell that Jesus had his soon coming exodus on his mind with that sentence. He knew exactly what was about to happen to him. And he was talking about it with his best friends. And this is where the story ends. First off, I can't imagine how hard it must have been for Peter and James and John to keep this all a secret. It is obvious, though, that the day did come after Jesus had risen from the dead when they shared this unusual yet very telling moment with everyone else. Because the story circulated widely and it could only come from three sources. But my question is what are we to do with this moment today? Clearly this revelation was more than just simply showing us Jesus' heart. It's a moment that tells us what is absolutely real and true about Jesus's identity. What this story tells us is that Jesus is someone who shows us the very glory of God. His radiance in that moment said that he is more than just a man. His radiance, even his clothing being radiant, says he was more than a great prophet like Elijah and Moses. His radiance said that he was even greater than John the Baptist, the man that Jesus was referring to when he said, Elijah has certainly already come. That's who he was talking about, John the Baptist. And you know what Jesus said about John the Baptist in another place? That he was the greatest man who ever lived. And yet this moment tells us that Jesus was more than that. What the disciples experienced and what we are so fortunate to still have a record of is this revelation of all that Jesus is, has been, is now, and will be for eternity. He is the radiant God in the flesh. And his radiance in that moment said, he is the powerful one, the holy one. He is the son of man and he is the very son of God. And so, just so we don't lose the power of what it is for Jesus to be called the son of man, listen to how the prophet Daniel described the son of man. He says this, as my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. I just wanna stop for a second. When we run into something that says coming with the clouds or coming on the clouds in the Bible, it is not talking about the white puffy things in the air. What it is talking about is he's coming not down, but at you. And the clouds are the dust that's created by the chariots and the horses and the soldiers who are all behind him in support of him. Jesus, this shows the son of man coming what? With the armies of heaven. And it says, and he approached the ancient one. That is a very well known name for the God of the universe. He approached God and was led into his presence. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. This is who Jesus was shown to be by his sudden metamorpho. His dazzling robe and his face shining like the sun said, This is the dearly loved Son of God, and He is the one who's been given authority and honor and sovereignty over all the nations of the world. And all I can say is, my goodness, my goodness, wow, my goodness. I've been thinking about something as I've been preparing for this message. And I'm starting to think that calling this passage the transfiguration may be the wrong title for this mountaintop mountaintop moment with Jesus. Here's why. I'm thinking that Jesus' true transfiguration, the greatest moment of his metamorpho happened in Bethlehem this is when he was fully transformed into something new that moment when he entered the world he he left behind all that we see in this story all of his true nature as the son of god and he took on a different nature he was truly transformed in bethlehem from the god through whom all things in the universe were made into a lowly human being, a man with flesh and blood and feelings and sorrows and pains, just like all of us. This was the greatest transformation. This was the greatest transfiguration. And yet as the other four stories in our Moments with Jesus series will tell us, this man still reflected the very character of God. He is still merciful and compassionate. And as we'll see in the coming weeks, he's still safe. And he is a gracious refuge for all who long to see healing and justice in their lives. And so again, what do we do with this moment? Well. For me, this moment tells me that I must never forget that when the disciples confronted the reality of who Jesus is, they fell flat on their faces. I must never, ever take Jesus as just my buddy. The fact that he even wants to have anything to do with me is a humbling, Reality, I must never underestimate who this man is. And yet this moment also tells me and you that we've been given the privilege of boldly speaking to Jesus and calling him our brother. That's humbling, that's humbling. And yet it is what Jesus longs for us to do. He wants us to speak boldly to him and to call him our brother. This moment with Jesus tells me that yes, he is the Christ. Yes, he is the Messiah, the Son of God. But he loves each one of us dearly. And he longs for us to tell our, our needy world around us that our brother and our Lord is merciful and he's compassionate and he's gracious and he's loving and he longs to bring great metamorpho into the lives of every person on the planet. That's what this moment with Jesus tells me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the great truth of this passage. The fact that there is a moment in real life where you showed three of your best friends the truth about who you are. And I am thankful that someday we will all stand with you and see that ourselves, that our faith in what you have done through your exodus and your resurrection gives us life as we would never have known without you. Thank you for your great love for us and for all that you have done for us, Lord, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Take a moment. Close your eyes. Picture yourself as James in the story of the transfiguration of Jesus. Imagine these events through his eyes. Your brother, John, awakens you out of a deep sleep sometime before the sunrise. He shakes your arm. Wake up, James. Jesus is getting ready to leave. Don't you remember that he asked Peter and the two of us to join him for a day of prayer on the top of Mount Tabor? You spring up, throw on your robe and sandals, and quickly join Jesus, Peter, and John for the long, difficult climb to the top of the highest mountain in the area. As you are climbing, you ask your brother if he knows what Jesus wants to pray about once you reach the summit. I don't, but it must be important. It turns out to be a long and difficult climb, and all three of you are very tired to the bone by the time Jesus begins praying. You are so tired that you drift off to sleep, but something awakens you. It's the sound of voices. You open your eyes, look in Jesus' direction, and you are overwhelmed by what you see. Jesus' robe has become dazzling white, and his face is shiny, shining as if it's the sun. Plus, two men have appeared out of nowhere and are talking to Jesus. Somehow, you know in your heart that these aren't just any two men. Somehow you know that these men are Moses and Elijah, and they are talking to Jesus about his soon-to-happen exodus. Suddenly, Peter, in his fear, blurts out, Rabbi, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let's make three shelters as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But before you can stop Peter from making a complete fool of himself, a cloud suddenly covers the entire top of the mountain, terrifying you even more, and you fall face down to the ground. And a thundering voice speaks out of the cloud directly to you and Peter and your brother. This is is my my dearly dearly loved loved son. son. Listen Listen to to him. him. Then as quickly as it all began, it's all over. No cloud, no Moses and Elijah, no transformed Jesus. There's nothing but silence as you continue to lie on the ground. Then you feel Jesus' gentle hand on your shoulder and hear him say, Get up, don't be afraid. Let's go back down and join the others. And as you begin your descent, Jesus adds, Don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. All you can think about is how hard it will be to keep this secret. You have had an overwhelming moment with Jesus. You've seen his radiant face. You've listened to him have a conversation with Moses and Elijah. You've heard him say that he would rise from the dead. You can't help but wonder about all this. You're sure that Jesus must be more than a rabbi. He must be, he must be as the voice so clearly said, the son of God. Feel in this moment. Do you think your understanding of Jesus has ever been too limited? What does it mean that Jesus is the Son of God? How do you feel as you think about the power and holiness of our Messiah? watching, but don't stop there. We want you to find community at Grace Church, and the first step in doing that is going to gracechurch.us slash hub. There you'll find other sermons, details about upcoming events, and other important announcements. And make sure you subscribe to our channel so you don't miss out when we post something new. Thanks again for watching. We'll see you next time.